Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast from the palatial, newly renovated digs of the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Sonia Luter. She is a global leader in financial therapy. She is the founder of Enlight and director of financial health and wellness at Texas Tech. And she's here today because she's the author of the new workbook, A Couple's Guide to Love and Money, 15 Exercises to Strengthen Your Relationship. Welcome. Thank you. And I do love the new digs. It looks very nice. If you could see that other people can't see it. Yeah, no, if you could see this other wall, I've got a phrenology head. I've got ink blots. I've got a guitar wall that you can't see. I'm super happy with the place where I spend all my time, which is this room. I can't wait to see if you're going to analyze my ink blot interpretations. That's why we're here today. We've got six ink blots lined up for you and we're going to see how crazy you are. No, we're actually here today because you wrote an awesome new book. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And I want to start with some stats because I I pulled some stats. We're doing some work on love and money at Orion, which is why your book was so timely. A few stats here to kind of get us primed. So money is the number one uh, source of contention, the number one thing that couples fight about in the first and third year of marriage. I don't know what they're doing in the second year of marriage. (laughs) Um, 12% of couples say that they have never had a single conversation about money, not sure how that happens. And more than one third, 36% of millennial couples say they fight about money every single week. So your book is timely. So love is complicated, money's complicated, put them together and yikes. Why are love and money so uniquely combustible, Dr. Luter? Yeah, you know, that's the age old question. And when you sit and think about it, the answer is really quite obvious because love is all about our values and money is all about our values. The other things that we got involved with in the relationship are more a reflection of our preferences. So I might get annoyed at the way that you brush your teeth, or I might prefer to um, eat a different type of food than you like to eat. Maybe we don't like the same TV shows. Those are all preferences today, and they may change tomorrow. But the way that we spend our money is a direct reflection of our deepest values. And oftentimes we don't even know what our true values are, but we are most definitely showing them in the way that we spend our money and how we show appreciation to our partner through love. I think this is a brilliant distinction, this distinction between preferences and values. So let's let's tease that out a little bit more. So am I correct in sort of getting from what you're saying that preferences are more fleeting, they're, they're not as deep-seated values? These are things we have maybe learned from our parents, have strong emotional resonance around, harder to change. Anything else you'd say there? No, that's all spot on. And I'm trying to wrap my brain around the statistic of 
the money being the top conflict in the first and the third year years of marriage, because of course, in the first year of marriage, because this is when you're figuring out, oh, I didn't realize you valued that as much as you did, but now here it is right in your face. And then year two, what happens? That's weird, isn't it? So I don't know if they didn't study it in year two. I just read that <laughs> it may have been one of those things where they studied it in year one and year three. So it could just be sort of an experimental artifact. The other thing, though, if you look at like when advisors get fired, it's kind of in the first and third year, right? So it's kind of like, okay, uh, an advisor, uh, let's say in the first year, we just figured out real fast, this isn't a fit, right? Like we started working together. It's not great. You're fired. Right. But then in the third year, it's kind of like you gave them a chance. It didn't quite work. And now we're out. So maybe it's similar in, in love and money. Who, who knows? But I, I, I like that distinction though, that, that love and money, these are reflections of deep-seated values, hard to change, things that we have strong emotional valence on. And we know from the research that where there's a strong emotional valence, it's going to be sort of recalcitrant to change, especially if you're just trying to appeal with facts and figures. So I think there's some nuance and some care that needs to be taken, which is why your your book is so good. So, you know, before you go on, I have to put this in there too, because this is some of my earlier research and this I found just strikingly amazing and so impactful and so important for financial advisors to understand not only about their own clients, but the adult children of their clients. So what we see is the amount that a couple argues about money at the beginning of their relationship is much more predictive of later relationship satisfaction and divorce then the amount that they're arguing down the road, whether that's two years or five years or 10 years down the road. So of course it's about values, right? Like that we're trying to align. And if we're not aligning in those early years, that's not going to get any better. So it's a really prime opportunity to provide some of that premarital financial counseling. And there's plenty of couples who go to premarital counseling, not all of them, but plenty do. And very little of it is focused on the financial side of things. Yeah, it's interesting. The back cover of your book says something like the perfect wedding gift. And I think that that's exactly right, because it sounds like from the research that if you don't get on the same footing fairly fast, then things can never quite right themselves, it sounds like. Exactly. So let's let's talk about some of the research, right? Because this is more of a workbook. I sent you a text making fun of you in the best in the best nature to make. Because I said, look, this is a $30 book that's got 50 pages in it. Like that's good, good bang for your buck. But having now gone through it, it's really more like a therapy session, or it's really more like five or ten therapy sessions, and you can't get five or ten therapy sessions for 30 bucks. So I know. See the bargain? No, it is a bargain. I at first I didn't see it, but but now I do. Let let's get into some of the exercises. In the communication part, you you talk about the power of giving your partner the benefit of the doubt and assuming the best about them. I saw this when I was doing couples therapy very poorly. I'm on record as being the world's worst couples therapist, but I, I saw the importance of this when I was doing that work. Why I do think we-, we should pause and identify what this means for you, Dr. Crosby? No, 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 ma'am. Get your own show. <laughs> Get your own show if you want to head shrink me. 
Why do you think we tend to do otherwise? Like, why why do we not just assume the best about the the people that we profess to love? And and how can we give our partners more grace and understanding? Yeah. Well, before I give you my real answer, I think this is also what we see with our own children. How everybody says, "Oh, you have the best children," and then they come home and they're just little holy terrors because that's where they feel safest and that's where they can show their emotions that they've bottled up during the day also happens with our spouse to where we can handle things we can hold it together in professional settings at work or with our friends but then now here's the opportunity for me to unleash everything that i've bottled up also the real answer that is certainly part of it but i think it's a reflection of our need to protect ourselves. And we're always in that mode, whether we're at work, whether we're at the grocery store, whether we are at home with our spouse, we are designed to take care of our needs and make sure that we are safe. So when we don't feel that we are safe, so somebody says anything that starts with you, we start to get into this defensive state. So if my partner says to me, why did you spend that much on the credit card today? Immediately, I go into a defensive reaction. That that may not have been his intent at all. He may have just simply been asking, like, "Hey, what did you buy today?" You know, like just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. But my mind heard you and an attack on me. So I go into this fight or flight reaction. I talk about it a lot. But that's what we see is I'm either going to fight through this situation because I feel like I'm being attacked. And so I'm going into this stress state to protect myself. So I'm either going to fight you with my words or I'm going to run away. Either I'm just going to disengage or sometimes literally leave the room. Stonewalling. I've talked with advisors who say this is the hardest thing to deal with with clients is when they stonewall you. So they just won't engage. They won't answer your questions. They're just sitting there, maybe not in their head, but you know, they're not listening to anything. They're in a heightened stress state. They're not paying attention. So if I'm remembering my marriage research, stonewalling is sort of one of the four horsemen of a bad marriage. And it's the one that's most likely to lead to divorce. If I'm remembering that correctly, what do you do if you, if if a couple is is stonewalling one another, if, if you and your partner are stonewalling each other? Yeah. Um, well, it's harder in the moment having that third person sure is handy because mm, yeah. it enables them to de-escalate the stress. And what I would do is invite them to just leave themselves behind for a moment and imagine themselves up on a balcony. So imagine we're at a theater, we're watching a really great show, And what we see down there is Tim and Sally arguing about this um, situation that they're going through right now. And here's some of the things that Tim said. Here's some of the things that Sally said. So Sally, tell me what else you see with Tim. Tell me what else you see with Sally and really invite them to get in that mindset of going up to a higher view and looking at the situation, I'm using my hands, so it's too bad other people can't see me using my hands to describe this. But you imagine like being up on that balcony mm-hmm. and you see a totally different perspective. You see maybe what that other person is hiding behind their back, or you see how scared that they look. You also see what you as the speaker looks like. 
Are you backing away from the conversation and enabling people to really get that third party perspective and you starting it being like, okay, well, here's some of the things I see with and talking at it into the third person. Um, Here's what I see Sally doing. Here's what I see Tim seeing. What have I missed here? And really invite them to share both sides of the story. Mm. And I think that can enable the stonewaller to be free of this is not about me. This is just a situation. And here's my outside perspective on what this situation is. Yeah. Literally taking, taking that outside view, you know, you've done some of the, the seminal research on money scripts and and money types. And it occurs to me that this might be this, this process of, of giving each other grace might be facilitated by an understanding of each other's sort of financial personality or financial values to use, you know, reflect back our earlier conversation you know, Jung has this great quote that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And I think about that when I've taught people about the big five or Myers-Briggs or something, and they learn about something in a coworker or a partner that is sort of typical of people of that personality stripe, whereas before they maybe thought it was something this person was doing just to make them angry, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, this is not This is what introverts do. This is what extroverts do. Can understanding your partner's money type or money script play a role in giving them this grace we're talking about? Yeah, and it's even more than that. So it's really getting at why. So the scripts are kind of what they're doing. So they're worshiping money or they're very vigilant, very watchful of money, but why? And some of the money script research that I've done with uh, Dr. Brad Klontz looks at this and it goes back to some of these, these things we heard or we saw early in life. And it may not have been that our parents were teaching us about money or that our friends were directly trying to influence our behaviors, but they did. And how we observed the arguments between our parents or how we saw our friends living and going on vacations and reporting back how wonderful it was, it influences what I value and what I perceive to be the correct way of living. Um, So first, you've got to figure out what your values are. And if you don't know what your values are, and I would venture to say the majority of us don't know what our core values are, we may say, oh, yeah, I like security. But is that your top value? Like, I think you really, and that's one of the exercises in the book is to go through and really identify what are those two or three core things about you that you would not change for anything else. And if I don't know what those are, I am going to push those onto the people around me without even realizing that I'm doing it. Same thing as what happens with the manuscripts. Our parents may have uh, really valued experiences, maybe because they didn't have experiences growing up. And by experiences, that might mean going to the grocery store and you say, oh, what about this new fancy toy that's by the register. Can I have that mom? Yeah, you can have that. My mom wouldn't have got that for me. So I'm going to buy that for you and whether or not they can afford it or not. So I think it's these things to where this 
as a later step goes into really looking at your family financial tree and what are some of those patterns and how has that guided what I value and what my money scripts are and how I'm behaving with my money today. Um, so I know I'm rambling here, but I think it's all very much related and it starts with your values because if you don't know what your values are, you're going to push them on the people that you love, your spouse. And, and yes, what you're saying with Young's quote, it's a great one, right? Um, unless you make the unconscious conscious. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, listeners to this show will know that I believe in the second thing that I'm going to talk about. I think if you pair sort of two beliefs, the first is like nobody got out of bed to make me angry. Right. When I was working, when I was working with couples, I would see them, you know, butting heads as though all the things that the other partner was doing that graded on them were this some intentional dig, and that was almost never the case. I mean, it's just sort of values colliding, scripts colliding, right? So if you believe that your partner is not doing these things out of malice, like as belief number two, and then that no one acts irrationally on purpose for belief number two, whatever their value is, right, it's going to make sense if you can just be curious about it long enough to yeah. figure out why they're why they're doing that, right? Stay getting curious instead of judgmental. Yes. Yeah. Like getting up on the balcony and really imagining what that person must be. Yeah. Thinking and seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you cite research in the book that was actually conservative relative to some other research I've seen. But your research says that 24% of men and 19% of women say that their partners are overspenders. And this was one of the most interesting parts of the whole book to me. Uh, you, you cited research that suggests that when two big spenders are married, that the marriage suffers regardless of income level. So even when you've got money, if you think your partner's a spender and they think you're a spender, it's bad for the marriage. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about this. First of all, how, how accurate do you think these assessments are? Because if you look at other more sort of marital research and you ask people like how much of the work you do, you know, I say I do 80% of the work and my wife says she does 80% of the work. Well, that doesn't quite work, right? So how, how accurately are we assessing each other, first of all? And then second, what can be done to, to combat this trap of, of, you know, both spenders uh, sort of getting the marriage in trouble. Yeah, you've got to start the conversation, which is what the love and money book is all about and what the financial advisor can facilitate as well, because it's has very little to do with reality and all to do about perceptions. And you used the words that hopefully the listeners picked up on that he thinks she spends too much and she thinks he spends too much. It's not that anybody is actually overspending from whatever the dictated budget was. It's that I just think that they're overspending. So this is actually my research. So yes, I do think that it's underreported. And I mean, if, but it was the data that they provided, right? Um, I also think that this idea that the two spenders is more conflictual than a spender and a saver is really quite interesting, right? That it's both of us thinking that we're not able to spend the money that we think that we should be able to spend perhaps on the things that we value the most. 
So maybe, maybe I think he's an overspender because he's spending money on things that I think are a waste of money. And maybe he thinks I'm spending too much because I'm spending things on what I value. So it's really getting down to, okay, well, what is the dollar amount? And are there categories that we're overspending on, perceiving to overspend on? Yeah. It it really is all about values because I'm sitting here, you know, running through, of course, you know, my mind goes to the the personal, right? And I go through conversations I've had with my wife and times when I've been like, you know, whoa, you know, what was this? And first of all, let it be said, I'm a much big bigger spender than my wife, like pretty, pretty plainly. But you know, when I've criticized her spending or she's criticized mine, it's been less of a we're spending outside of what a financial advisor would tell us to be spending and saving because we've always been good about that. And it's more about like, hey, you bought something that I don't value, right? Like you bought something that I don't value. What is this? Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know what else is fascinating? I've really tried to figure out what is this magic dollar amount that we can spend and be okay. So is it $50 that each of us can have each week, each month? Is it $500 that each partner can spend each month? And like, where's the ideal dollar amount for reducing conflict? And I can't find it. And looking at income categories, it I don't think it exists. It's what you as a couple agree on together. And furthermore, I'm not even sure that that would matter because to your point, it's not so much about the dollar amount itself. It's what the thing is that you're buying. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the logical next question is what sort of things do you put in place in your relationship, right? I mean, you don't want to be lording over what your, you know, your partner can buy and vice versa. But then, you know, at, at some point, like if someone's overspending legitimately, there's a conversation to be had. So there's, I guess there's, you're saying there's no shortcut, right? Like you just got to figure out what that looks like for you and your family, what be clear about your values and why this thing is meaningful to you and, and conversely why it's not valuable to you, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you say it like, oh, I guess that's it. Kind of sounds hopeless, <laughs> but here's the thing. Like we need to get together. We need to first establish the values, use those to make our goals, the long-term goals. And we're going to stick to our long-term goals. And if in the middle we mess up or we decide to splurge or we just decide to deviate in a while, for a while, are we still meeting our long-term goals that reflect our values? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, then okay, fine. Like you spent $500 on some piece of equipment that I think was a waste of money. Baseball, well, baseball cards, baseball cards. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that's a waste of money. In fact, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not but, introducing you to my wife. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. But did that require you to take $500 away from the long-term goal that you both have agreed to and you both agree matches your values? But isn't, I mean, since money's fungible, isn't 
I mean, isn't the answer always kind of yes? I mean, <laughs> insofar as, you know, that $500 had to come from somewhere. Yeah. Because I, I think that's where you get in conflict, right? Is like, let's say, you know, we have these we have these communal goals. We have this group goal. As a couple, we want to get across this finish line. And if, if, you know, you and your partner are spending things that aren't of communal value, then yeah, like any money that is spent on X could be going to, to the bigger goal. I don't know. It could be going to that, but is that what you initially agreed to? Yeah. So right? coming up with that contract within your own relationship to whatever yes. works. Yeah. Yeah. That whatever the dollar amount is that we want to have in the future, are we on target to meet that? Mm -hmm. And if we are, and there's discretionary income, how can that be used? And I would venture to say, if you're still meeting your long-term commitment and you both agree that you're still meeting your long-term commitment, then does it really matter if you spent the $500 on baseball cards? And that goes back to what you were saying in terms of being non-judgmental. Like, okay, I think it was a waste of money, but on the other hand, isn't necessary for me to point that out. Yeah. Because did you take anything away from me? Right. Yeah. Not necessarily like you could have spent $500 on me, mm -hmm. but we've also agreed that we are on track to meet our long-term goals. So why don't you just take that judgment away and realize that sometimes we need things for ourselves too. Yeah. So we're going to get- Easier said than done. I'm so, yeah, no, e easier said than done. Easier said than done. We've, we've, uh, we've reached a truce on the baseball cards. Uh, you'll be, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> um, a couple of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, one part I loved was a section that, that highlighted the need for generosity and gratitude around what we do have. You know, I feel, um, so many of the finance books that are written are just so acquisitive, right? I mean, it's all just like more, 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 more. And we're all wired for that. And we don't need any help, right? We don't need any, we don't need to read books about getting more, or wanting more, or pursuing more. We're all very much wired for that. How can we encourage ourselves and, and others to sort of pause and count blessings? Um, I'm glad you asked this right when you did, because we were throwing out a lot of examples, right? So we were anchoring the conversation around $500 is some sort of magical number to where this must mean something. Not so long ago, I lived in a world to where spending an extra $50 was, okay, let's take a break here because what did we just have to give up by splurging on this $50 thing? So it's really this idea of perspective and 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 changing in socioeconomic status. That's the hardest thing. So until we can figure out what it is that we're chasing, it's going to be very hard to live with generosity because we don't know what the end goal is. So we're just chasing to fill up our own, dare I say, self-worth because we don't we don't know what else to fill it with. So until we feel good about ourselves and where we are at that point in time, it's hard to be able to express that generosity to other people. And just thinking about the people that we hang out with. So I know that we're not in the same income bracket, but we're close, right? Like very well off. And, and that frames how we see things. 
And until we can get out and see if I, if I perceive that um, your family is doing so well, or I don't know, Elon Musk, let's use him as an example, since he likes your tweets and all that. Um, I really want to be that wealthy to where I don't have a care in the world. Do we really know what his life is like? Um, do we really know what the life is like a few neighborhoods down to maybe they don't have as much income? And so until we can get out of who we hang out with on a day-to-day basis and see how other people are living, it makes it so hard to be generous because we don't know what other people have or what other people don't have. And when you have that outside perspective, once again, of, oh yeah, you know what, maybe having billions of dollars isn't as great as I thought it was. Or maybe you go a few neighborhoods down and you're like, oh, you know what, they they seem really happy. They don't seem to be worried about all of the things that I worry about. Maybe they have different worries and it puts a different frame on things. One of my favorite people is Ted Klontz, uh, not to be confused with Brad Klontz that we talked about earlier, his dad. And he talks about this idea of we all live in a, our own bucket of crabs and bucket of crabs. And when we try to climb out of that bucket, the other crabs in the bucket will pull us down. And so it makes it very hard to escape one reality because the people around us are pulling us down. So if we're hanging out with people who are spending a lot of money and living a really great life and seemingly great life, and they're going on vacations and and they're buying the boat and they, they have two extra cars, they have all of the things. It's really hard to climb out of the bucket and express generosity when these people down here are pulling on me like, oh, you need the car too. Oh, you, you haven't went to Disney yet this year? You need to go to Disney too. What about the cruise? You didn't go on a winter cruise? So it's this idea of they're just, they keep pulling us down to, to where we can be like the people around us. So I think it really involves just getting out exposing yourself to new situations and and seeing what it is that you desire and once you figured out what it is that you desire then you can open up some of that generosity generosity door i suppose yeah i I heard a lot of great stuff there right first of all having a why because i think in the absence of a why in an absence for something we're striving for the that sort of extra acquisitive nature comes in and it's just like more 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 if there's no why it's just like you know, what do I, what's my financial goal? More money than I have today. You know, it's yeah, a bottomless bucket. Yeah. Bottomless pit of, of greed. And then, you know, I love the idea about getting out, you know, going down the street, so to speak, and, and seeing how other people live, but just even being self-referential, you know, you talked about a time when you're talking about 500 bucks here and at you like, Hey, I remember a time when 50 bucks was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember in my own life by our fav- famous family story is when my, uh, we lived in Hawaii right after we were married and my, my wife's, uh, hairdryer broke and we could not replace it. I mean, we just mm-hmm. did not have whatever a hairdryer cost money uh to to replace it we just had to drip dry you know we just didn't have the didn't have the money and it's good to remember where where you came from so we're short on time here i was going to talk here about my favorite part of the whole book my favorite exercise of the whole book was the genogram family tree we're not going to talk about it because we're going to make people go buy the book and just do it themselves when when they buy the book 
But I want to end on one of the hardest things that I saw when I was doing couples therapy. I found very often that couples came in wanting to blame each other, right? And wanting to sort of triangulate the therapist in that blame game. So it's like, hey, I'm going to come to therapy so you can scold my partner the way I scold my partner and and tell them why they're so wrongheaded. And, you know, both of them did that. Mm -hmm. And there was very little taking responsibility and there was a lot of pointing fingers. And I found that if a couple was ever going to make progress, they had to start by owning their own stuff. They had to take that like radical responsibility first. As advisors, how can we encourage this? How can we model it? And how can we help people move past this natural tendency to point fingers? Yeah, you know, that really is what the book is all about too, is let me do the exercise for myself. You do the exercise for yourself. And then let's compare answers. Neither one is right or wrong, but it enables each person to have their full say and then come together and and find some sort of a collaboration together. And that's really what the advisor can do is make sure that both people are being heard. Other research that I've done looks at how much of a financial conversation is directed to the man versus the woman. It's still primarily directed toward the man on average. I'm not saying that there's not exceptions, but primarily it's getting directed towards one person. And so as the advisor taking a step back and really being very careful to direct the majority of the conversation to the person who's being the most quiet, whether it is the man or the woman, and and making sure that both people's perspectives are being heard and even encouraging some of those conversations of, you know what, um, before we meet again, why don't you both separately go write down some of your top financial wishes and versus sitting there together and be like, all right, so, so what do you want your retirement to look like? It's hard. If they're not on the same page, it's going to create that conflict and it's going to create some of that finger pointing of, well, I wanted this, but she says we can't have it and, and whatever. Um, so really separating some of that time and allowing people to voice their opinion is, is a big deal. Whether you do that in your time together or send them out to do it on their own and bring it back to you. Yeah. Observationally, it takes someone, it takes someone taking that first step and, and owning this and saying, yeah, this is, these are the things that I do, right? Like Mm non-defensively saying, these are the things that I do. And it's been my experience that when one person takes that step, the other person may test them a bit, right? <laughs> they may not, you know, immediately come around, but but when you model that radical ownership and that radical responsibility, you know, the partner comes around, but somebody's got to take that first step into the dark and instead of saying, "Oh, look what she does or look what he does," to say, "Hey, this is this is what I do." You know, this these are my own sort of money demons and and I got to get those sorted. So the book is awesome. It's uh, completely original. It's around something that we don't see enough research on. And and I hope people will go check it out. Uh, Tell us the name of the book one more time where people can buy it and how they can support you and in light. Yeah, it's a couple's guide to love and money. 15 exercises to strengthen your relationship. It does cost $30, which equates to $1 per exercise per person. So huge bargain on the therapy front. Uh, You can look at it on my website, enlight.world, E-N-L-I-T-E. 
or go to Amazon and it's right there. You do need to type in love and money, 15 exercises. However, I've tried searching for it, love and money looter, and it changes it to litter and you'll get all sorts of advertisements for cat litter. So love and money, 15 exercises will get you there. Sonia Luter, big advice on love and money, big advice on search engine optimization. What would we do without you? Thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your insights with us today. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.